day the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God, because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. If you're a normal Madisonian and you haven't read that in a while or haven't read it before, you probably, you're, you probably feel very uncomfortable with that verse. I promise before the sermon is over, you will feel both more uncomfortable with it and less in different ways. Um, just hang in there and we'll talk about what it really means, okay? Um, Luke 14, starting in verse 25. This is Jesus teaching. Very large crowds traveled with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life. Such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and aren't able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying— this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war with another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? And if he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not, those of you who do not give up everything, you cannot be my disciples. How do you like that one? In the book of Nehemiah, the people come back from being in captivity out of a punishment for 500 years of sin. They, they're in captivity 70 years. They come back to rebuild the city, the land, the people of God, and God is with them. And they do it for a number of decades, and they accomplish a lot, and they accomplish things nobody ever thought possible. And they get to the last part where they celebrate, and they promise, and they cry, and they take oaths, and they have good leadership, and they do all this stuff. And they're like, we are going to— experience renewal, spiritual renewal forever, you know? And then Nehemiah has to go back to Babylon for 12 years. And he comes back, and everything has fallen apart spiritually. Everything. Every promise. In fact, all the promises they made in chapter 10, they literally have not done any of those even. Even the explicit ones, right? And one of the things that this brings up is when you look at the whole sweep of Scripture— um, human beings experiencing awakening spiritually, either in a group, in a revival, or personally in repentance, how do you get that to last? How do you get that to last a, a year, <laughs> or a whole month, or a decade, or a hundred years? Right? What does it really take to persevere? Like, if you think about um, that passage we talk about in, in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, where <clears throat> Peter goes through these eight steps of growing in godliness unto love. The fifth one is perseverance. It's really just read over that one. That is the one that usually fails. Perseverance constantly fails. So few people who start out well persevere. Um, Edwin um, Friedman, who is a deceased psychologist, said in one of his books, he said, listen, when people look back at what they called their bad decisions— Usually it wasn't the decision was bad. It was the things they did between when they made the decision and their present failure that made the decision bad. 
Our issue is not not being able to make decisions. Our issue is living up to our own decisions by doing the things between that day and this that must be done to persevere in the thing we endeavored to pursue. And so one of the questions we have to ask yourself, we have to ask yourself whenever you start anything is, are you willing to do what it's going to take to finish this? Not just start it. Because most people don't think of those terms and most people don't figure out what that costs or what that means. And I mean, Jesus says it's like, it's very critical. He's like, listen, if you want to come and follow me, you better determine at the front end of becoming my disciple what it's going to take to make it to the back end. Because if you don't, you're going to be like some guy who wants to build a tower. And he's like, I'm going to build a tower. And he gets like 80 bricks and builds part of the foundation. Everybody makes fun of him the rest of his life because he didn't actually build a tower. He just wasted a bunch of money on bricks. Right? I mean, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if if Christ is not raised and we are not forgiven of our sins because of it, and if we do not have an eternity with God, and if we are not the friends of God and his beloved children who are being remade in his son's image, we are most to be pitied because we're, we're picking a life that's really hard on ourselves. And perseverance in the scriptures is mandatory. All who really believe and are really converted persevere to the end. But from our perspective, we have to choose to persevere to the end because that is the nature of real faith. The question is, are you, wherever you are in your walk with Christ, whether you haven't started yet, whether you're in it, whether you're wishy-washy in it, like one of the things that you have to sort out, and this will sort out everything about your faith just about, is are you willing to do what it takes to finish? Now, Part of the reason for this is just how human beings develop and grow strong in God, right? God will give us sometimes the grace for awakening, right? Which, which corporately we call revival, individually we call repentance. Like, there's a moment where your emotional mind <laughs> realizes you need God. Like, something, like, either you're going the wrong way, or you've kind of just grown stale in your life, or you feel like, you, like, emotionally you just— you haven't cared about what God cares about. And like something happens where you realize you need to turn back to God, right? And so you go, I need to turn back to God. So you turn back to God. That's fantastic. That naturally lasts about 20 minutes. The average person who, who I talk to who is crying enough that their nose runs, that effect lasts less than 48 hours. Do you understand? Before you just harden right back up again. What has to happen is you have to convert that awakening into reform. Like you have to decide what you're going to do so that your life will actually change. Right? I'm going to come to church. I'm, like, I'm going to be here every Sunday no matter what, whether I feel like it or not. I'm going to read my Bible in the mornings. I'm going I'm to schedule myself so that I can do this. I'm going to have a Christian friend and mentor in my life. I'm going I'm to structure my life so that predictably, m- m- as a human being that I know is going to be fickle about things, I'm going to do these things that are going to help build me up and form me the way I want to go, right? You can say you want to lose weight. If you don't make a workout schedule and diet, you're not going to do it. It's not going to happen. So you have to be wise enough to realize that if you have revival, if you have renewal, you need reform. You got to get a structure. But the problem is, is that if your heart isn't continually renewed, the structure itself will grow corrupt. It'll grow legalistic. You'll, it'll grow lax. It'll grow— you'll change it enough so that it doesn't have the heart in it anymore, but it has some kind of form in it. And it—, it like— like, it's like having church. Like, you come—there are churches, you go to church every Sunday, and you're, you're in the reform structure, but man, it's dead as nails, or it's not really focused on the heart of Jesus, or it's—the church has given itself over to something completely different. So you're like, you're in the reform structure, or you're doing your devotions, and you do it because you're hoping that if you read your Bible and you pray most days, that God will love you. 
because you know he probably doesn't really like you. But maybe if you do all the stuff he says, then maybe he'll be happy with you, right? Turns out that's misery. It's misery. It only works if you come to that reform structure of reading your scriptures and praying because you want to know more about God. You want to grow in wisdom and stature. You want to be both corrected and encouraged. You want to find out what nourishing thing God's word has to say, and you want to turn to God for the real needs of your life and to confess to him the real truths of your heart. When that is what's happening, that reform is life-giving. When that's not what's happening, it is destructive. What that means is, is that even those reform structures have to themselves be cared for and renewed like a garden. Like, you can plant that thing, you can put the fence and everything, but you got to go out there every day and weed it. You got to water it, you got to weed it, you got to fertilize it. Almost everything, even stuff that's well-built, takes some kind of upkeep. And you see, continual renewal requires that there are things that we do like a gardener, like somebody who takes care of a machine, like somebody who doesn't want the whole system to break down, where they go in and they care for stuff every single time. When I was a security guard back in my seminary days, um, every couple of hours, I had to get up and walk a half mile to every engine room, every air conditioning room, and there were certain lights that needed to be on, and there were certain lights that better not be on, and there were certain doors that needed to be locked, and that needed to be maintained and watched over because somebody was going to screw up and something was going to break down, and it was my job to get in there and renew the thing before the reform structure broke down. It's my job, right? And it's your job to do that in your life, and it's the elder's job and your job, if you're a member, to do that at our church. Does that make sense? Now there's, there's five things in— um, in Nehemiah 13, where when Nehemiah gets, he's at the end of his ministry, like he's, he's getting to be an older man. He can't keep going back and forth between Babylon and Israel. He's done everything that he possibly could for these people for like four decades. And, and he can't lead them forever. But he comes back after these 12 years, after everything is broken down, and he's like, look, we're going to get this stuff straight. And he makes five major final reforms. And then he says, God, please remember me for the good that I've done, whatever good that is, because this is all I can do. Right? And these are, at least in Nehemiah 13, the five devotions that sustain renewal. That he's already, he set up the structure of reform, but without these things continually being done with vigilance as acts of continual renewal, you can't sustain spiritual transformation. Okay? And they are ferocious purity, leadership integrity, faithful stewardship, invested worship, and obedient discipleship. We're going to cover those over the next five weeks. Okay? So this Sunday is going to be ferocious purity. One way to say it would be this. Ferocious purity is the foundation of sustained renewal and persevering faith. Ferocious purity is the foundation of sustained renewal and persevering faith. So if you want to shorten it, you can shorten it to this. Ferocious purity is the foundation of persevering faith. If what you want is persevering faith or continual renewal. Sustained continual renewal in a local church among people or persevering faith as an individual believer. And remember, persevering faith over the long run is what produces vital faith in the present. If your faith is structured to persevere in the long run, it's much more likely it's going to be vital in this moment. All right. Okay, I want to break this down into a few things. I'm going to say a bunch of things wrong over the next 15 minutes, okay? But I want you to track me and try to get what I'm saying, because I didn't have nine weeks to write this, and it's—the issues here are a bit nuanced. The first is spiritual ferocity or ferocious purity has to have the stomach to exclude contamination. You have to have the stomach to exclude contamination. Purity, what it is, I'm not talking—purity, sometimes when people hear that in church, they assume it means sexual purity, and it, they assume it means for the non-married, right? And that's—it includes all that stuff, but purity is not just related to our sexuality. It's related to everything in our life, whether or not we, our 
the main focus is a purity of heart that is, it is single towards God. That our heart is pure in its devotion to God as our Savior, our lover, our creator, and as our King and Lord. That's our one thing, and nothing competes with it. There are no adulterous relationships to that single devotion to God as Lord. What purity is, is a high level of integrity that comes from the absence of contamination, okay? So purity does not just take the heart to keep running. It takes the stomach to exclude that which contaminates and destroys. If you have a heart to keep going in Jesus, to make it to the end, but you don't have the stomach to actually engage in excluding what is necessary to have that purity of heart, you're you're never—your heart's going to give out. You're never going to make it. It's like somebody who wants to run a marathon who has a backpack on that some like really nice person asked him to carry to the end for them because they wanted to have some water. If you don't have the guts to be like, you're crazy. I'm not carrying your stupid backpack 26 point whatever miles so that you can have a little water at the end. I'm not going to be manipulated by you. I'm throwing this thing in the garbage or you can take it back. Otherwise, I'm never going to make it to the end of the race. I've been training. I have a heart to run 26 point whatever miles. I can do it. I can't do it carrying this stuff. So here, right, if you don't have the stomach to unencumber what would contaminate the purity of the heart God wants you to have for him, it doesn't matter what your heart is like. It will give out under the destructive and degenerating power of its contaminants. Think about this in Nehemiah, right? It says that because God said no Ammonite and Moabite could be admitted to the assembly of God, they realized that their only, the only proper response was they had to exclude from all Israel those who fell into that category. Now, I know for, for most like American people, like, oh my gosh, like, that sounds very like ethnocentric and xenophobic and blah, blah, blah. I, listen, I really wish I had 40 minutes just to talk about like why it is like that. Problem is I don't, okay? But you can just carry this into the New Testament and completely unrelated to any ethnicities or anything in the Old Testament, Jesus says something basically identical in its meaning without that other context where he says, listen, if you want to be my disciple, right, you have to hate your father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, even your own life, right? Or you can't follow me. You just can't. It doesn't work. And then he says, parallel to that, similarly, you have to take up your cross, which is obviously an instrument of execution. Now, Obviously, now people have said, well, Nick, um, you know, most New Testament scholars think that that's hyperbole. Well, it's because it is hyperbole. But the problem is, is that we interpret hyperboles like metaphors. The minute we identify it as a hyperbole, then we simply decide it must not mean what it says. No, hyperboles and metaphors are extreme ways of saying things that are really extreme. What's the really extreme thing that this is hyperbole of? Which is, is that in relationship to the purity of our heart towards God— even the people of our closest natural relation cannot in any way compete with our devotion to God. That's just as radical. Like, technically, yes, active hatred for your spouse to follow Jesus is not exactly what God means. (laughs) But it basically means that if there is a draw away between the two, for example, Jesus clearly loves his mother, clearly loves his disciples, clearly loves his close friends. He even loves his own life. He, it, he enjoys living and everything. And when he's about to be murdered on the cross, he's sweating blood because he knows what it's going to cost him to purchase our salvation. That is the absolute eradication, destruction of his life in the most painful way possible. And it bothers him because he doesn't want to just be killed. He is fully human. 
And yet, every time any one of those things comes up against the purity of his devotion to do the will of his father, all of those are put behind him. His mother thinks he's working too hard and he's being too controversial or whatever, and she comes to take charge of him in Mark's gospel. He's like, listen, relative to the gospel, you people here willing to obey the word of the Lord, you are my mother's brothers, sisters, and fathers. And he doesn't go with his mother, and he doesn't stop his ministry, and he doesn't do what she says, right? When Peter tries to tell him he's not going to the cross, his closest earthly friend, he says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in your mind the things of God, but the things of men. And when it comes to the very point of his, him giving his own life, when his friends wouldn't even pray with him, he prays, and he devotes himself to his father, and he pours out his heart, and then he embraces the death of the cross. Because he can't be the Savior without doing those things, and we can't be the disciples of that Savior without doing those same things. That is, if you want to persevere to the end, if you want to experience renewal in the present and toward the end, you have to have the stomach for that. And listen, if you're not a Christian— you should come to Jesus. He is an amazing King and Lord. He is the one who can raise the dead. He will ultimately triumph over all of the universe and every knee will bow to the good Creator King who deserves it. But listen, you had better count the cost before you start. And this is why you should, because you'll be, you will be so much happier in Christ if you learn about what you're getting into before you even do it. And you won't think anybody changed the rules on you, and you won't be angry about it. You'll know what you got into. You'll know who you were following in the first place. And when you do it, you'll put your hand to the thing with some strength, knowing it's going to be hard, but knowing it's going to be worth it. It's people who start, and they don't even bother to figure out what they're getting into. They don't know that it's going to take heart and stomach, and they get into it. And usually it's not their heart that gives out. It's their stomach that gives out. And because they won't, they don't have the guts to push off the contaminants, their heart eventually gets crushed by it, and they fail. You have to have a stomach for purity. Now, one of the things that's relevant in um, the issue of Nehemiah 13 is, why are Ammonites and Moabites, these people, getting kicked out? Right? Now, one of the things that's important to recognize is that this is a really important question because if we're going to have a heart for purity, there is a way that this could be done wrong. Right? We could— we could decide some things that are not contaminants are contaminants and, and think we have the guts to get rid of those contaminants and we're really not doing what God wants, right? One of the things that you have to, you have to understand if you're going to know God well is the difference between an ingredient and a contaminant, right? So I've got three jars. This is water, just straight up water. I can take the top off. I can drink it. It's fine. It's water, right? It's pure. It's water. There's, there's no contaminant in it. There's also no other ingredients in it. Does that make sense? This is some kind of berry tea. It's still warm, apparently. Hopefully it's not somebody's pee, right? Um, so, like, this is not pure water. It has an additional ingredient to it, but it's an ingredient, not a contaminant. So this is pure, but it's pure tea. It's water and the ingredient of the tea. Does that make sense? And, like, as believers, we're not supposed to believe that, like, having a pure heart towards Jesus means that literally what we should do is, like, in some stone room contemplate the, like, image of Jesus the rest of our lives, like, never eat or love or run or build or act or work, right? 
The minute we turn to God as our spiritual Father and Lord, He turns us, He remakes the image of God in us by His Spirit, and He turns us back to creation to do the work we're meant to do in creation. And so our heart is then given to all these things that we do and that we participate in, and we, we marry and love and raise children, and we have friendships, and we like live with people and wash dishes and go to work and do all kinds of pursuits for the common good. And all of these things are in our hearts because we care about them and they matter. And so long as they are subjugated to the Lordship of Jesus, and so long as they're given to us in good and wholesome ways by what God wants us to do as human beings in the world, they're not contaminants, they're ingredients. Right? It's good that they're mixed. Right? Now, there are a lot of, con there are a lot of ingredients that if we don't love them in their right way, in the right place, can become contaminants. Right? A husband or a wife can become a contaminant as much as they can become a great ingredient. So can a child, so can a job, so can prestige, so can a good name, right? Now the third is, this is, I, I captured some of my dog's poo in this water. When I was bringing these to church this morning, I had them in this thing and they were sliding around and one of them broke. And it was the water. So Murphy's Law does not always apply. Um, so this is water with only one ingredient in it. In addition to the water, right? But the ingredient is a contaminant. And so if this is ever going to be any good, somehow this has to get excluded from it. And so as a believer, you've got to know the difference. You've got to know what's an ingredient and what's a contaminant. Now, in this passage, <clears throat> um, it's important to recognize a couple of things. The first is, is that the Bible explicitly says in Exodus 12, 48, that people from other nations who are not native Israelites can become native Israelites if they become Jews. And there's a very simple marker for becoming Jews that's a little bit more demanding than baptism for those of you who are, who are like, well, I'm just going to put it off because I don't really want to do it. Well, it was circumcision. Um, and so if a man of any nation wanted to become a Jew, he could. And once he was circumcised, he was considered a Jew. And he could eat the Passover. He could be inside the holy people of God. He could participate in the festivals. He was counted as a Jewish person. Does that make sense? So in that sense, although the Jewish people were racial by their self-definition before God and by his, him taking them as a people group out of Egypt and so on, they weren't necessarily made to be merely of one group. There's all kinds of provisions for foreigners living among them. There's all kinds of provisions for slaves freeing from foreign lands to them for freedom. And there are provisions for those foreigners, if they wish to, to become full member citizens and Jews. And in so doing, they can be part of all of the worship and the festivals of God, right? Now, secondly, in Ezra 6, 20 to 22, it says explicitly that when they celebrated the Passover again, in the this time of revival, same period as Nehemiah, right? This is the same group of people. It says that the Jewish people, the Jews, that is the, of the tribe of Judah, and everyone who had separated themselves from the neighboring peoples and their detestable practices ate the Passover. Meaning that there was some significant group of men and women who when the Jewish people, the two-year-old Judah came back and settled Israel, they chose to become Jews. And in doing so, they recognized what that meant. That meant they had to separate themselves entirely from the lifestyles, choices, culture, and idols of the people from which they came and become full-ought Jews. That didn't mean they couldn't cook, like, meals from where they were from, but it, mean they couldn't take, it meant they couldn't take their gods, their sexual practices, their idolatries, their whatever God considered in his word detestable practices. They couldn't do those anymore. That was part of becoming Jewish, and in becoming Jewish, you got those rights. Similarly, if you remember the book of Ruth, right? What, what nationality is Ruth? 
She's a Moabitess, right? She's in one of these two nations that are just never to be among the people of God, right? But when her husband dies and her mother-in-law Naomi is going back to Israel, she says to the, these two Moabitesses, listen, you're Moabitesses, just go back to your people. You'll find new husbands, you'll have children, you'll have a great life. And Orpah does, one of the women, but Ruth says, no, no, I'm coming with you. And Naomi says, you can't come with me back to Israel, because she's a Moabitess. You're taking some like stray Moabitess back to Israel, right? But, but, but Ruth says, no. No, 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 you don't understand. I'm willing to leave all these people behind. I'm willing to leave my Moabiteness behind. Where, wherever you go, I will go. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And wherever you're buried is where I'll be buried. You see, she burned to the ground her Moabitess identity. She realized that to be a Jew meant to be a Jew. It meant, it meant turning aside from all the practices of her people that were in contrast to the teachings of God through the Jewish people. And it meant becoming one of their people officially. And in so doing, God miraculously provided for her. He protected her under the Jewish law that protects Jewish women who are found destitute. He provides for her a godly Jewish husband. And she becomes the mother of the children in the line of the great King David and ultimately the Messiah, Jesus. So you got to put all that in your, your pipe and smoke it when you read this thing about the Ammonites and the Moabites not being allowed in the, among the people of God, right? What does it mean? Well, in Nehemiah 13, 23 to 24, it explicitly says that there were a bunch of men among Israel who over those 12 years had married women from the other tribes around them who had not become Jews. They just intermarried with the other peoples. And when that happens, like, by halves, the original culture falls apart, right? Like, my mom's Italian. My dad's British, German, whatever, like, a mud American. How Italian am I? Well, I interrupt people, and I wave my hands around, and I like pasta. That's about it. I don't speak a word of Italian besides chow, right? I'm just not very Italian. And it's, it's not really my fault or my mom's fault. It's just she married into another family that wasn't Italian. And so I didn't grow up Italian. It, that's the nature of familial connection. And if a faith is being passed down through a family of peoples, and they intermarry with other peoples who are, do not share those values or thoughts or beliefs, what happens is there's a natural dilution that happens. It says in those verses that the children of those marriages couldn't even speak Hebrew. Nehemiah came back after 12 years and talked to these, like, kids, and, like, they didn't speak the language of Israel. They knew nothing of Judaism. They knew nothing of the worship of God. Like, it had completely destroyed the cultural identity of the people who had married them, and they were moving quickly away from God. Such that it makes a difference whether or not there's an area where you do exclude certain things, and not because you hate the things you're excluding, but because you care very much to preserve the things that you're isolating or making a priority that you want to have integrity. Right? The, the verse that says, they excluded from all Israel those who were of foreign descent, that's a translation meant to try to help you, but I don't, I don't think it's correct. The literal Hebrew says that when they heard the command, it said, they divided all mixture from Israel. Right? And so how do you translate that? Now, the interesting thing about foreigners in this passage is that there is a generic Hebrew word for foreigner, and it's used twice in this chapter in those later verses that talks about them marrying foreign women. It could have easily said in this verse, they got rid of the foreigners. Like, there's a word for that. It's used twice in this chapter. So why isn't it used here? Right? I think the answer is, it, was, it wasn't that they were looking for anybody who wasn't born in Israel. 
None of these people were born in Israel. Most of them were born in Babylon. The point is, is that they were the inner sanctuary, the assembly of God. Those people, they were to be Jews by blood or faith, but Jews. Worshiping the God of Israel, worshiping him the way God had demanded he be worshiped, and that place to be purely for that. And anybody who wasn't that was going to be excluded, not from all of the land of Israel, but from the people who are counted as Israel in this thing called the assembly of the Lord, which I'm going to get to in just a second. What that means for us, though, is the, the spiritual point here, and I'm just going to quote Earsby because I could preach on this for like eight minutes, but I'm just going to read this quote and you'll get a pretty good sense of it. This is what he says those verses mean. The quote, mixed multitude, that, that, the mixed group or that divide, that division from Israel, he says, is composed of unconverted people who want to belong to the fellowship of God's people without trusting the Lord or submitting to his will. They want to be blessed, they, they want the blessings, but not the obligations. And their appetite is still for the things of the world. Balaam was a hireling prophet who tried to curse Israel, but each time saw the curse turn to a blessing. Finally, however, he hit upon a scheme to defeat Israel. He encouraged the Moabites to be neighborly and invite the Jews to share in their religious feasts, which involved sexual immorality and idolatry. Balaam knew that, the hum that human nature would respond to the opportunity for sin and the Jews would disobey God. As a result of their sin, Israel was disciplined by God and 24,000 people died. The mixed multitude in the church today urges us to follow the philosophy of Balaam and to do what the world wants rather than to be vigilant to obey God. Right, that, that's the idea. The idea is, is not that some racial group wasn't good enough. The idea is, is if you want to reconstitute a people who want to obey God, you better only include in the smallest group who are focused on that, the people who really believe in God and want to obey Him. Right? Which leads to the second thing. That should be too, sorry. Is that is, is that ferocious purity identifies a sanctuary perimeter. Purity isn't about isolation or insulation. It's about maintaining a source of spiritual integrity. So, in this passage, this thing called the, um, the assembly of God in Nehemiah or the assembly of the Lord in Deuteronomy 13 is not all of the Israelites. It is specifically the believing Israelites as they gather in the temple for worship. It is the temple, its outer courts, all the worship, the reading of the law, all of that. In that place, believers were invited to remember they were believers, learn how to be believers, and be encouraged in being believers. So that they could go out into God's wider people in the land of Israel and continually bring this spiritual integrity to continually bring life and reform and renewal to the whole country. One way to think about it is this. If you think in terms of um, purity versus being insulated, right? Some people are like, we need to be pure as Christians. We need to be pure. So we need to separate from people. We need to make sure like there's no non-Christians that go to our church. And we need to make sure that like we tell everybody out there that they're bad so that bad people won't come to us and we won't have toxic relationships and blah, 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 blah. That's not really the point here. The point here is there has to be somewhere where you have integrity and that integrity and purity is maintained so that in all of the rough, the rough and contaminating and dirtying and messing up things of life, there is some place that has some purity that you can pour out into it. If you think of it this way, if this water in this bin is like our community of believers or of faith or the city or whatever, and, and let's say it's a stream and it flows out, and it's just, it gets contaminated, right? And so I have, let's say that this jar— like is, bo is bottomless, right? Now, if I have enough of this poured out of this place of integrity and purity, and I pour it, 
And this is all flowing and flushing out as I do it, right? What's going to happen ultimately? Ultimately, this will dilute and dilute and dilute and dilute the contamination as it flows downstream, and the stream will come to life again. Here's the problem. So long as this is separate from that. You understand? If this is all one lake, the contamination dilutes into all of it, and there's no pure source from which to pour from. Does that make sense? So in, in order for there to be spiritual integrity, there has to be a place in you, and there has to be a place in the people of God where this kind of integrity is maintained, where there's a purity, where we don't accept admixture. Like, we're like, no, this is what God has told us to do. This is what it means to commit yourself to his truth and his will. His truth and his will is rules. It's Lord over all these things. And that's all we're interested in here. And then we pour that out into other things as, because as you go through your life, listen, things get contaminated and beat up and like you do stuff that's wrong and stuff gets in your heart. And like things mess with you. And if there's not a place inside of you where you do not mess around, that Jesus is Lord. So that when you screw up, and that screw up, that sin wants to get a foothold in your life, and it pushes in your heart, your heart sees that and goes, oh, it's time to repent. No, this goes no further. This does not make it inside this perimeter of purity that I will have in my heart towards God. And so you repent, and you push that out, and you begin. That, that, the purity pours back out of the place of faith in your heart and rewashes the places in the wider Israel of your life, so to speak, and washes it out. Similarly, churches need that too. That's why churches need to have elder boards. It's one of the reasons why we have um, a, a membership class in a membership. And if you've been to Explore, I, I say in the membership, that the, in the class, that membership is the credibly regenerate membership at High Point Church. That is, people who have a credible case that they have believed in Jesus, they want to believe his truth, and they want to do his will. And that group of people is the steering community of the church. Why? Why would we have a fence around that? And the answer is, because if there isn't a group of people, in a particular case, willing to say, no, we are totally focused on the will of God and the truth of God, and we will do it with absolute purity. Jesus will be Lord, and nobody will make us back down. Nobody's going to tell us what to do. We will serve God. Then from that place, you can have all kinds of stuff going on in the church that's like all messy and screwed up, and you can have kids smoking in the lobby and breaking windows by accident. You can be ministering to people that do all kinds of bad stuff. They can steal from the church, and they're all in here. We're all doing kinds of weird ministries. Doesn't matter. Because the pure heart of those following Jesus can keep pouring out the oil of obedience and love into the church, and it will wash away what's bad, but it will keep what's good. And it won't exclude that which God has called us to bring in and wash, but it will wash away the contaminants, as it should. Let me say one last thing before we end, because I'm a little bit over the time I'm supposed to preach for. And that is ferocious purity is vigilant against enticement. Notice the reason that God gives for why the Ammonites and the Moabites aren't to be brought into the sanctuary of God. It's the story, right? The story is, is that the Moabites and the Ammonites chose one to try to starve the Israelites rather than help them. Then they tried to spiritually attack them by having a spiritually powerful man curse them, but God turned it into a blessing. And then when they found out that, that God was protecting his people by providing for them and spiritually protecting them, they re- Balaam realized that the only way to destroy a people that God provides for and spiritually protects is to get those people to turn their backs on God. You have to entice them. And One of the things that I just, I just don't feel like a lot of believers are focused on is the continual presence of enticement in the Bible relative to the people of God. It's a fundamental human theme under the curse always, and the predominant activity of human beings relative to enticement is to fall for it. 
And it, it just boggles my mind the lack of vigilance that Christians and just people commonly have towards obvious enticements that will destroy that place of the purity of heart that you're holding for God and God alone, focused on His truth and His will. Only your, Romans 12, 1, spiritual act of service. Right? The Moabites recognized that there were a lot of young men in Israel. Remember, because everybody died off in the desert. And so this generation of Israelites were coming in were mostly young men. Well, what are young men mostly prone to? Young women. <laughs> so, the, so the Moabite and Ammonite men prostituted their own young women over to the Israelite men to entice them into this festival that included sexual immorality and ritual prostitution and intermarriage and all that kind of stuff if they wanted it, right? which was also wrapped up in idolatry so that they were intermarrying with someone he got explicitly said not to and also worshiping idols so that God allowed a plague to come around those people. You remember how it stopped if you read the Bible? This Moabite princess gets together with this essentially Israelite prince, like a high-level elder's son. And they like walk in front of everybody to the tent so that they can have some fun. And Phineas, the, one of the, the priests, gets a spear, and it, he goes in the tent, and it says that he drove the spear through him and threw her into the ground, which means they were in what position? And at that, God ended the plague, because there was at least one person in the entire nation of Israel that cared about purity and had the stomach to pursue it. Now, the way God calls us to pursue purity is very, very different. God puts no sword in our hand. And the, the places where we have to deal with purity is not in the, in the world or in the city, right? Our nation as the people of God now in Christ is the church, right? We're supposed to pursue purity in the church and even more, in a more focused ways, purity in our own hearts. And one of the things that's been really sad over the last several years is how given the church has been to all kinds of enticements, large and small. Like, just the, the, the church giving into political enticements at all ages has been just so grievous to me. So grievous to me. So many older evangelicals in America uh, just got like swooped up in the whole Trump is going to save us thing. And, and they, they didn't just like vote for him instead of Hillary Clinton and held their nose. Or they didn't just say, well, maybe he'll get good justices. Like there were people that like were on that train and were like, he's going to be fantastic. This is going to be so great. And there were all these people, especially in the Western charismatic church, that prophesied that he was going to get a second term and all this stuff was going to happen. And even for many of them now, even after the inauguration of Biden, they're like, no, God is still going to fulfill the prophecy I gave because that was from the Spirit and the Lord. I don't think so, dude. Like in the, the guy here, Chris— um, Something from Bethel, like he apologized. Like he's one of the only people in America that was like, I was wrong. I got swept up in it. I, like I thought it was going to be good, and I, I thought I heard from the Lord. I didn't hear from the Lord. I was wrong. I was proven a false prophet. I'm really sorry. You know what happened when he did that? He got death threats. He got death threats from people who I bet go to church. And they don't know that they're sleeping with Moabites. It's like they don't even know. Same thing, so many younger believers, so many like believers under like 40 or 35 or whatever. I'm probably not a younger believer anymore, right? so, Like, <laughs> they so don't want to be disliked by the world, and the world is being taken over by a soft tyranny of, of progressivism. And I mean the secular, godless, there are no institutions of God, the family is like a patriarchal slavery. Like, I'm talking about like the woo ones, right? And there's so many believers who are like younger ones who they want to be Christians, 
But they're like, well, but probably Christianity goes with this fine, and I'll just be like, a pro- like there's this, but we're progressive Christianity. We're like, we've got questions, but no dogmatic answers, you know, kind of thing. And it is, like, you're sleeping with Moabites. It's not Christianity. It is Christianity, and whenever, like, when everybody somebody puts a controlling adjective in front of Christianity, you need to wake up. It, listen, and if you, listen, if you want to vote for some of those people, that's fine. What you think is prudent, rightly, as you think things are, you vote for them in good conscience. Whether you're right or wrong. You got to vote for somebody, right? Maybe it's them. But here's what you don't do. You don't bring it in the assembly of God. You don't bring that nonsense into the family of faith, into the assembly of God, where we're supposed to have a pure heart for Jesus alone, His truth, and His will. Obviously, these are not the only enticements, though, right? They're enticements of technology and food and sex and promiscuity and all kinds of ways we justify these things to ourselves so that we can, we can have our holy land and our Moabitess too. And you can't. You can't. Not if you want to persevere. Not if you want to follow the God who carries a cross and dies. Not if you want to be Jesus' disciple. You cannot do it. He has no lords. Jesus has no lords. And neither can you have any others. And if you have two gods, remember Jesus says in Matthew, you will hate one and you'll love the other, and you'll love the Moabitess because she's naked in front of you, and you will not love the God who is distant, drawing you to himself in purity of heart, being ready to die and being built up into the image of God renewed because of his redemption. And friends, if you don't recognize that part of the stomach of pursuing ferocious purity is that you have to be vigilant to constant enticement, you will not avoid your own demise. You've got to be more serious-minded than that. It's not a game. We're not playing a game. Read the Bible. Almost everyone in this book dies, fails, slips, falls, gets eaten. It's it's very few. There's like two people besides Jesus in the whole Bible. Nothing negative is said about. And there's some questions about Joseph's late economics. It might just be Daniel. Listen, we'll talk next week that God provides leadership for us. And the great, the great and perfect leader of those leaders is Jesus the Christ. And he is vigilant to lead you. And he's, you have a leader who's calling you and drawing you in and following you and trying to get you back. And as you, whenever you stray as sheep and contaminants get into the heart, he comes in and he's, he, he wants to do a new work in you. But you must, you must turn to him. You have to believe in him. You have to combine it with faith. And you have to pursue purity of heart. You have to want purity of heart. You, wanna, you have to want to burn everything else to ashes and, and believe that in the one Lord, in his truth, and in his will. And without that intention, without a stomach for it, without putting a perimeter around the sanctuary of your heart, and without recognizing that you have to have vigilance about enticement, none of this can ever happen. You can't be delivered. You can't experience continual renewal, and you will not persevere. But, but why should we count it as such a high cost? to be free and alive with a pure heart, to be given the the heart that we were meant to have as those in the image of God with the heart of Jesus himself alone. 
Why should we so despise the greatest possible gift that God could give any creature in his creation? And why should we spit upon the greatest spiritual triumph we could ever experience to have a pure heart? We act like it's a trial to receive the greatest gift there ever was. It's not. It's the greatest joy. It's the greatest treasure. It's the greatest thing. And Jesus hands it and gives it and pours out his spirit to recreate it and form it in you. And you just have to take hold of it by faith and believe and trust him and let him flush away the garbage. He will. He will. Let's pray. God, um, I could say more and people might be able to hear a little more, but I pray that you would take even just one line of what I said that any individual person in this room needs, and you'd press it home into the sanctuary of their heart and draw us to an ever more, um, ever deeper desire to pursue you in purity, to know you consistently, and to be vigilant about the enticements that would carry us away. Help us to love and honor you in Jesus' name.